everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. I am Sarah, and thank you so much for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. Rather than ramble for a few minutes about this or that, I am going to jump right into this episode, right into this chapter, because it is a long one, and it's going to take me a while to get through this. So to recap, last week in Chapter 43... Nick Andrus left Shoyo and met another survivor, Tom Cullen, in May, Oklahoma. Tom is probably around 40-ish, although he looks much younger to Nick, and he has an intellectual disability. But he and Nick seem to get along pretty well, and they look out for one another. Along their journey towards Nebraska, they experience a few dangerous encounters, a tornado, and then Julie Lowry, who they meet in Pratt, Kansas. Julie is a young woman who seems to have a few screws loose in her head, and after Nick sleeps with her, she maliciously taunts Tom about his stomach medicine being poison. From there, Nick scares her off with a gun, but Julie retaliates by slashing the tires to their bikes and shooting at them from a nearby building. Tom and Nick manage to get away unharmed, and after finding new bikes in a town a few miles away, they are approached by a car and a man inside of it named Ralph Brentner. In chapter 44, so buckle in you guys, because we've got quite the journey with Larry Underwood. Larry is not doing too well, mentally or physically. He's been walking for some time, ever since he ditched his motorcycle. It doesn't seem like he's taken much precaution either, walking in the dead heat of summer. He has no hat to shield himself from the sun. And he hasn't been eating much either. As Larry's wandering along, he's thinking of the music of the 60s and how much better music was back then than now in the 80s, or I guess 1990. Anything to keep his mind occupied. He's been unable to sleep for the past week without waking up screaming, and on the good nights, he would wake up with the screams still lodged in his throat. If you screamed out loud and woke up to that, you scared yourself even worse. Larry is haunted by the death of Rita, as well as nightmares of being in the Lincoln Tunnel and being chased by the devil, the Dark Man. During the day, his visions of the Dark Man would recede, but then he would think of Rita and how she looked when he found her dead. She had died so easily in the night in the same sleeping bag that she had shared with Larry. After Rita's death, Larry couldn't ride the motorcycle anymore. He was way too paranoid about crashing, fracturing his skull, or slamming into another overturned truck around a blind corner and going up in a fireball. So he ditched the motorcycle, sending it off into an embankment and into a gully. Larry had been afraid that the bike would somehow rise up and smite him. His mental capacity had begun to deteriorate then, and he imagined something supernatural taking over the bike, lifting it from the gully to find him and chew him up. Larry could just see it coming down the highway at him, doing 80, and bent over the handlebars would be the dark man, and riding behind him, Rita, with her white silk deck pants, her face pale, and her hair dry and dead. But eventually, the motorcycle stalled and fell silent in the gully, and without the cycle, there was no way in which he could mount a serious assault on the silence. And the silence was, in a way, worse than his fears of dying or being seriously hurt in an accident. He had gone through a few towns with cycle shops, but looking at them too long triggered visions of himself lying in the road beside a pool of blood. Larry had been losing weight as well. He walked all day from sunrise to sunset, and he wasn't sleeping. The nightmares woke him. When the sun rose, he was on his way again until sunset, and then he would make camp. He wasn't eating much either, because he never felt hungry. More than anything... Larry was scared. The sound of birds made him twitch, and the sound of animals taking one another out nearby made him jump out of his skin. He was now poised on some metaphoric or metabolic fence between scrawniness and emaciation. He had grown a beard, and it was actually rather striking, a tawny red gold two shades lighter than his hair. 
His eyes were sunken deep in his face. They glittered out of their sockets like small desperate animals that had been trapped in twin pit snares. Larry knew he was cracking up. He had once been a man with a moderate hit record who wanted to be the next Elton John, and now he was this broken thing crawling along Route 9 in New Hampshire. The other Larry Underwood could surely bear no relation to this crawling cheapskate. Larry finally collapses from the heat, but across the road on a hill was a white New England farmhouse with a small brook running along the front of the lawn. Larry decided to take a seat in the shade on the lawn, and maybe he would go down to the brook to get something to drink and wash up. He probably smelled, although who was there to smell him now that Rita was dead? Larry wonders about Rita. Is she still in that tent, gathering flies, swelling up? Of course she was. She wasn't golfing in Palm Springs with Bob Hope, after all. Larry lays down in the shade, realizing he has a sunburn along the back of his neck and shoulders. He would need to get some xylocaine, and he begins to doze, and soon he's in a deep sleep. Nearby, by the creek's edge, the bushes begin to rustle, and a boy steps out from behind them. He looks to be thirteen, maybe ten, but tall for his age. He's naked, but for a pair of Fruit of a Loom shorts, and his body is tanned from the sun. In one hand, he carries a serrated butcher knife. He makes his way to Larry, with the clear intent to stab him, when a female voice stops him, soft but firm. The boy is disappointed, but the woman tells him that they'll wait and see, and Larry sleeps on. Later, when he wakes up, he's feeling much better, he's hungry, and it's much later in the day than he remembered. In fact, he discovers that he had slept all night, and now it was 9.30 in the morning. Larry washes himself in the brook, and then he crosses the stream towards the house. For a moment, he freezes, thinking he hears something in the nearby bushes, but the fear subsides quickly as he thinks it's probably a fox or a squirrel. As Larry approaches the house, it finally occurs to him, why hadn't he been riding a bicycle? He had been walking ever since he ditched the motorcycle, wearing himself out, collapsing from heat stroke, and this whole time, he could have been pedaling along, doing no more than a fast run, if that's what he felt like. He would probably be on the coast by now, having picked out his summer house and stocking it. Larry begins to laugh, a bit spooked by the sound of it at first, but then the laughter felt healthy, so much like the old Larry Underwood, so he let it come. Behind him in the bushes, a pair of greenish-blue eyes watch. They watch Larry as he goes up to the porch of the house and tries the door, finds it unlocked, and goes inside. The boy, carrying the butcher knife, pushes through the bushes to follow, but the woman appears again and puts her hand on his shoulder. She's described as tall and imposing, but seemed not to move the bushes at all. Her hair was a thick, luxuriant black, streaked with thick blazes of purest white, attractive, startling hair. It was twisted into a cable that hung over one shoulder and trailed away only as it reached the swell of her breast. When you looked at this woman, you first noticed how tall she was, and then your eyes would be dragged away to that hair, and you would consider it. You would think how you could almost feel its rough yet oily texture with your eyes, and if you were a man, you would find yourself wondering what she would look like with that hair unpinned, freed and spread over a pillow in a spill of moonlight. You would wonder what she would be like in bed. But she had never taken a man into herself. She was pure. She was waiting. There had been dreams. Once in college, there had been the Ouija board. And she wondered again if this man might be the one. She tells the boy to wait. The man won't hurt the house. And when he goes, they'll follow him. The boy shakes his head vigorously, but the woman says, yes, they have to. She has to. And she felt that strongly. He was not the one, perhaps, but even if he was not, he was a link in a chain she had followed for years. A chain that was now nearing its end. Joe, which was not really his name, waved the knife wildly and lifted it as if to stab her. But she did not move to protect herself or flee, and so he lowers the knife again and looked to the house. She tells him he won't use the knife because the man inside was a human being, and he could lead them to, well, other human beings is what she means to say, but she's not sure that's all it meant. 
Already, she was feeling pulled in two different directions, and she began to wish they had never seen Larry at all. The boy, Joe, is angry, but he returns to the bushes and lays down in a fetal position to sleep, still clutching his knife. The woman settles down to watch the house, her eyes calm. That afternoon, Larry finally has a bike, and he's entering Maine. He made some really good time, and he realizes he must have walked quite some distance in his semi-days of fear. Either that, or he lost a couple of days somewhere. On his journey, Larry hears noises, and ever since he left the big white house in New Hampshire, he was having the feeling that he was being watched. It didn't frighten him as the others had. He wasn't hallucinating or feeling delirious. If someone was watching him but hanging back, it was probably because they were scared of him. And if they were scared of skinny Larry Underwood, who was now too chicken to be on a motorcycle going over 25 miles per hour, then they were probably nothing to worry about. Still, Larry calls out to them. They can come out. He won't hurt them. But no one answers. By six o'clock that night, he reached North Berwick and camped there. There was a small store in North Berwick, and Larry grabbed some goods and food before heading out. Across the street, he thought he saw two long shadows trailing back behind a restaurant, and he thought briefly about running across the street to surprise them out of hiding. But he decides not to, because he knew what fear was. Larry takes some time at a creek nearby, at an old brick building that was once a school. He cooks his food and eats it while sitting on one of the playground swings. It occurred to him to wonder why he was so little afraid of the people who were following him, because he was sure now that there were people following him, at least two, maybe more. As a corollary, it occurred to him to wonder why he had felt so good all day long, as if some black poison had leaked out of his system during his long sleep the previous afternoon. Was it just that he had needed rest? That and nothing more? It seemed too simple. He supposed if his followers meant to harm him, they would have already. They could have shot at him from an ambush or covered him with their weapons and forced him, forced him to surrender his own. They could have taken what they wanted by now. But why go to the trouble of stealing and killing and risking their own lives when everything they'd ever want or need was there for the taking? Just break the glass in a shop window, walk in, and take it. Everything that was except the companionship of your fellows. That was at a premium, as Larry knew very well. And the real reason he didn't feel afraid was because he thought that that was what these people must want. Sooner or later, their desire would overcome their fear. He would wait until it did. He wasn't going to flush them out like a covey of quail. That would only make things worse. Two days ago, he would probably have done a fate himself if he had seen someone, just too freaked to do anything else, so he could wait. But man, he really wanted to see somebody again. He really did. Larry finishes his food and a six-pack. By then, it's seven o'clock and the sun is getting ready to go down. So Larry rides his bike and finds a house with a screened-in porch and decides to sleep inside of it. The woman's name we find out, is Nadine. She was sure that she and Joe had already been spotted by Larry, but she didn't really care if they had been or not, because Larry was not crazy. Not like the man who had passed by the big white house ten days ago. The man who had been loaded down with guns and grenades and ammunition. He had been laughing and crying and threatening to blow the balls off of a man named Lieutenant Morton. Nadine wakes up from her sleep, or where she had been on the edge of sleep, and finds that Joe is gone. She calls for him, but he doesn't answer. She and Joe had been cycling along behind Larry, never too close to be seen, as that would upset Joe, but not too far back that they would lose Larry, because that would upset Nadine. She kept telling herself that Joe would get used to the idea that they needed Larry. They couldn't be alone. If they stayed alone, they would die alone. So Joe would get used to the idea. She calls for Joe again, and when she hears the clatter of gravel, she knew exactly where he was going. Ignoring her aches from riding the bike, Nadine follows. It was a quarter after ten. Nadine and Joe had made camp earlier behind the barn grill, and they had watched Larry eat his food in the playground of the school. Then they had watched him go up the road to the house with a screened-in porch, and that is where Nadine hurries to. 
She finds Joe outside, his white underpants the brightest thing in the dark. Joe was from Epsom. She knew that because that was where she had found him. Nadine was from South Barnstead, a town 15 miles northeast of Epsom. She had been searching methodically for other healthy people, reluctant to leave her own house in her own hometown. She worked in concentric circles, which grew larger and larger. She had found only Joe, delirious and fevered from some sort of animal bite, rat or squirrel from the size of it. He had been sitting on the lawn of a house in Epsom, naked except for his underpants, butcher knife clutched in his hand like an old Stone Age savage or a dying but still vicious pygmy. She had had experience with infections before. She had carried him into the house. Had it been his own? She thought it was likely, but would never be sure unless Joe told her. There had been dead people in the house, a lot of them. Mother, father, three other children, the oldest, about 15. She had found a doctor's office where there was disinfectant and antibiotics and bandages. She was not sure which antibiotics would be right, and she knew she might kill him if she chose wrongly. But if she did nothing, he would die anyway. The bite was on the ankle, which had puffed to the size of an inner tube. Fortune was with her. In three days, the ankle was down to normal size, and the fever was gone. The boy trusted her. No one else, apparently, but her. She would wake up mornings, and he would be clinging to her. They had gone to the big white house, and she had called him Joe. It wasn't his name, but in her life as a teacher, any little girl whose name she had known had always been Jane, any little boy, a Joe. With the man who had come by threatening Lieutenant Morton, Joe had wanted to rush out and kill him with his knife, and now he wanted to do the same to Larry. Nadine didn't want to take Joe's knife away. That was his talisman, and trying to do that would probably be the one thing to make Joe turn on her. It was clear now that Joe wanted to kill Larry, and he was jabbing the knife at the screen door. Nadine came up behind him, and in an instant she clapped her hand over his wrist and twisted. Joe gasped, but Larry didn't wake. The knife fell to the grass, and Joe, well, he's not very happy. He points to the lump inside that is Larry's sleeping figure, and then brings his thumb up to his throat, running it across his Adam's apple, and then he grinned. Nadine had never seen him grin like that before, and it scared her. It could not have been more savage if those gleaming white teeth had been filed to points. Nadine says no, or she'll wake Larry up now. Joe shakes his head. Nadine tells him to come back to the camp with her to sleep. For now, the savagery is gone in Joe's face as he looks down at the knife. Now, he was only a lost little boy who wanted his teddy bear. Nadine figures this could be the time to shake her head and make him leave the knife, but then what? He might scream. Did she want to meet the man sleeping on the porch with such screams ringing in his ears and hers? She asks Joe if he'll come back with her, and he nods. He picks up his knife, and they go back and fall asleep. When she wakes up again, Joe's arms are no longer around her, and she wonders if he had waited until she slept before creeping back into the house to cut the man's throat. Nadine realized if he did that, she would have to cut him adrift. To take life when so much had been lost was the one unpardonable sin, and she could not be alone with Joe much longer without help. Being with him was like being in a cage with a temperamental lion. Like a lion, Joe could not, or would not, speak. He could only roar in his lost little boy's voice. But Joe is still with her, just sleeping nearby. Larry, for his part, is feeling much more like his old self. He plans to ride the rest of the way to the ocean that day, and he leaves the porch, where he notices shapes of footprints, big and small. Sometime during the night, they had come to the porch to look in on him, which gave him quite the chill. If they didn't show themselves soon, he would have to flush them out. Larry continues on his way, and soon he makes it to the Atlantic Ocean. He parks his bike and walks towards it, feeling excited. He finally made it to where the sea took over. Land's End As he drew closer to the headland, the thin skin of earth was peeled away and the naked bone of granite poked through. Granite, Maine's final truth. Gulls rose, clean white against the blue sky, crying and wailing. 
He had never seen so many birds in one place before. It occurred to him that, despite their white beauty, gulls were carrion eaters. The thought that followed was nearly unspeakable, but it had formed fully in his mind before he could push it away. The pickings must be real good just lately. Feeling overcome, Larry sits for a while, enjoying the sea breeze, watching the water. Larry eats lunch on the beach. He feels cleaned out, fresh. As he begins to walk back across the marsh, he realizes with a nasty jolt that the sound of screaming gulls nearby was not gulls after all, but a human scream, a war cry. He spots a young boy running towards him, in one hand a long butcher knife. Behind him was a woman who looked pale and circles of weariness under her eyes. She calls out for Joe, but Joe does not back off. Larry thinks he's going to kill me. This boy, what did I ever do to him? Larry has time to realize that he left his rifle with his bike before Joe is upon him. As soon as Joe swung the knife down, Larry's paralysis broke. He stepped aside and brought his foot up, pushing the work boot he wore into Joe's midriff. Larry felt pity because there was nothing to the kid, and he went over like a candle pin. He looked fierce, but he was no heavyweight. Nadine cries out for Joe, but asks Larry not to hurt him. Joe had fallen back, and Larry took a step forward, stepping on Joe's wrist, pinning the hand holding the knife to the ground. He tells Joe to let go of it, but Joe hisses in response. He was trying to yank his wrist free instead. Joe tries to bite Larry's leg through the denim of his jeans, so Larry steps down even harder until Joe cries out, not in pain, but in defiance. The stalemate between them would have continued if Nadine hadn't arrived. She calmly tells Joe to let go of the knife. Joe resists and snaps back at her. But then Nadine tells him that if he doesn't behave, she will leave him. She will leave him and go with Larry. Larry felt a further tensing of the arm under his foot, then a loosening. But the boy was looking at her grievingly, accusingly, reproachfully. When he shifted his gaze slightly to look at Larry, Larry could read the hot jealousy in those eyes. Even with the sweat running off him in buckets, Larry felt cold under that stare. Nadine assures Joe that no one would hurt him. No one would leave him if he let the knife go, and they could all be friends. Finally, Joe stops struggling and loosens his grip on the knife. Larry takes his foot off of Joe and takes the knife quickly before throwing it out towards the headland. Joe's eyes followed its course, and he gave one long, hooting wail of pain. The knife bounced off the rocks and skittered over the edge. Nadine is examining Joe's arm, and Larry feels defensive. He had to do it. This boy had wanted to kill Larry after all. But Larry can read the judgment in Nadine's eyes. You ain't no nice guy. But Larry doesn't say a word. It was what it was. His actions had been forced by the boys. Larry meets Nadine's gaze and thinks, I think I've changed. Somehow. I don't know how much. And he thinks of someone named Jory Baker, who was always on time, never missed a practice session or fucked up an audition. He was a competent guitar player. Once, Jory had been the driving wheel of a group called Sparks. Sparks with an X, by the way. They were on their way to the big time. Hard, solid guitar rock and roll. And Jory had done most of the writing and vocals. And then there had been a car accident. Broken bones. Lots of dope in the hospital. He had come out with a steel plate in his head and a monkey on his back. Dope had turned into heroin. He got arrested, and soon he was just another street druggie with fumble fingers spare changing down at the Greyhound bus station. And then, somehow over a year and a half, he got clean, and he stayed clean. He was no longer the driving wheel of any upcoming band, but he was always on time, never missed a practice session, or fucked up an audition. He didn't talk much, but the needle highway on his arm had disappeared. He's come out on the other side. That was all. No one can tell what goes on in between the person you were and the person you become. No one can chart that blue and lonely section of hell. There are no maps of the change. You just come out on the other side. Or you don't. And Larry, he thinks, I've changed. I've come out on the other side, too. Nadine introduces herself. They shake hands and start to walk side by side back to the road. Joe is still sitting on his knees, sucking his thumb. Nadine tells Larry that he will come. 
and they begin to talk about how Nadine and Joe had been following Larry for two days now. Nadine asks him not to be angry with them, which probably sounds silly, given Joe had just tried to kill him. But she explains how she found Joe and why he was the way he was. And she wants she and Joe to go with Larry. He wonders what she would think if he told her about Rita, but he can't bring himself to do that. That episode was deeply buried, even if the woman in question was not. Larry doesn't even know where he's going. His plan was to find a nice house on the coast and stay until October. But the longer he goes, the more he wants other people. Basically, he stopped looking for houses and started looking for people. And Nadine says that he found them. But Larry thinks that they found him instead. And he doesn't want to ask, and he knows it will sound brutal, but he admits that Joe worries him. And would Nadine consider leaving him? He still didn't sound like much of a nice guy, but was it right? Was it fair for either of them? To make a bad situation worse by burdening themselves with a 10-year-old psychopath? He told her he'd sound brutal, and he has. But they were in a brutal world now. Nadine tells Larry that she can't leave Joe. She understands the danger. Joe is jealous. He's afraid Larry will become more important to her than he is. She thinks leaving him would be the same as murder, and she cannot do that. Larry points out that if Joe cuts his throat in the middle of the night, she'll be party to that. Nadine wants to go with Larry, but she cannot leave Joe, so he'll have to be the one to decide. Finally, Larry decides that they can come. But he thinks Nadine is being dangerously soft-hearted. Nadine says she'll be responsible for his actions, and Larry says that's a great comfort if Joe kills him. That would be on my heart for the rest of my life, Nadine said in a sudden certainty that all her words about the sanctity of life would someday not too distant rise up to mock her, swept her like a cold wind, and she shuddered. No, she told herself, I'll not kill. Not that. Never that. They camped that night on the beach. Larry built a fire where Joe created torches from larger sticks that he would find scattered about. The sea breeze had cooled some, and Larry is reminded of the rain that occurred the afternoon when he found his mother dying. Nadine spots Larry's guitar and asks if he plays. Larry discovered that he wanted to play, not for her, but because sometimes it just felt good to ease his mind. So he begins to play his guitar, thinking about Wayne Stuckey and Johnny McCall and the good old days. When he finishes, he looks up to see Joe is standing by the fire, staring at Larry with fascination and his mouth wide open. Larry begins to play again, and he begins to sing this time. Joe is grinning now in the amazed way of someone who discovered a glad secret. When Larry finishes, Nadine claps, and Joe begins to jump up and down, making fierce hooting sounds of joy. Larry cannot believe the change in the kid, and he cautions himself not to make too much of it. Music hath charms to soothe the savage beast. Larry begins to play again until his fingers are sore, and then Joe holds out his hands. He wants the guitar. Larry is hesitant, but he hands Joe the guitar and tells him that it takes practice. And then Joe begins to play one of the songs Larry had strummed almost flawlessly, hooting at the words rather than singing them. Still, it was obvious Joe had never played a guitar before in his life. He couldn't bear down hard enough on the strings to make them ring out properly, and his chord changes were slurred and sloppy. But otherwise, it was a carbon copy of the way Larry had played. Larry tells Joe that he had to build up calluses, hard spots on the edge of his fingers, and the muscles in his left hand. Nadine is surprised. It's like Joe is something of a prodigy. Larry begins to reach for the guitar to show Joe how to use the strings, but Joe stares at him with distrust. Larry relents and tells Joe that when he wants a lesson to come see him. Joe hoots again and runs off down the beach with the guitar in his hands. Larry is afraid he'll smash it to hell, but Nadine is confident that he won't. That night, Joe falls asleep with the guitar in his hands. Larry's okay with this. You couldn't stab anybody with a guitar, although it made a pretty fair blunt instrument. Even so, Larry is finally able to fall asleep. The next day, they cycle south on US-1, and by 11, they find themselves at a bizarre roadblock at the town of Agunquit. Three bright orange town dump trucks were driven across the road, blocking it from shoulder to shoulder. Sprawled in the back of one of the dump bins was the crow-picked body of what had once been a man. 
The last ten days of solid heat had done their work. Where the body was not clothed, a fever of maggots boiled. Nadine wants to know why they blocked the road, and Larry figures they were attempting to quarantine their own town. He thinks they'll find the other roadblock on the other end. So they wheel their bikes past the trucks and they ride on. Soon, they pass the summer cottages, and Larry thinks of the people who had filled the cottages and this road during the summer, people who were now gone. Nadine doesn't think that the cottages are very pretty, and Larry agrees, but, he says, once it was ours, Nadine, once it was ours, even though we were never here before, now it's gone. But not forever, she said calmly, and he looked at her, her clean and shining face, Her forehead, from which her amazing white-streaked hair was drawn back, glowed like a lamp. I am not a religious person, but if I was, I would call what has happened a judgment of God. In a hundred years, maybe two hundred, it will be ours again. Larry says the trucks won't be gone, but Nadine points out that the road will be gone. The trucks will stand in the middle of a field or a forest. They won't be trucks anymore. They'll be artifacts. But Larry thinks she's wrong because they're looking for people. Why does she think they're doing that? Nadine responds that it's the right thing to do. People need people. Yes, Larry said. If we don't have each other, we go crazy with loneliness. When we do, we go crazy with togetherness. When we get together, we build miles of summer cottages and kill each other in the bars on Saturday night. He laughed. It was a cold and unhappy sound with no humor in it at all. It hung on the deserted air for a long time. There's no answer. It's like being stuck inside an egg. The two of them go off to look for Joe, but Nadine thinks he's wrong. He has to be. If such a monstrous thing as this had happened for no good reason at all, what sense did anything make? Why were they even still alive? When they find Joe, he's sitting on the back bumper of a Ford parked in a driveway, reading a girly magazine. Larry asks if he's coming with them, and Joe puts the magazine down and points up into the air. Nadine notices the barn first and the sign written on the side of it. Have gone to Stovington, Vermont Plague Center. Below that, there were a series of road directions, and at the bottom, leaving a gunquit July 2, 1990, Harold Emery Lauder, Francis Goldsmith. Nadine realizes that she should have thought of the Plague Center before this, Larry isn't even sure they're still alive, but Nadine believes that they are. The plague was over by July 2nd, and if they could climb up onto the roof of a barn, they weren't feeling sick. July 2nd was two weeks ago that day, so they must be there by now. Maybe there are others, too. Maybe they were working on a cure at the CDC in Stovington. Larry's not sure, but Nadine is impatient and a trifle wild about it. Larry had never seen her so excited. Nadine thinks maybe Harold and Francis have already found dozens, maybe hundreds of people. They should go right away. Larry tells her to wait. They need to have some lunch before they can decide anything, and Joe is already falling asleep on his feet. Larry is fearful but realizes he needs to ask Nadine if she can drive. She says yes, but a car is not very practical with the roads. And Larry is thinking of Rita, riding pillion behind the mysterious black man, the two of them bearing down on Larry astride a monstrous Harley hog like weird horsemen of the apocalypse. Larry suggests motorbikes of some kind. Nadine had never driven one, but she believes Larry can teach her how. Larry's dread intensifies. He can show her, but very slowly. A motorcycle doesn't forgive human error, and he can't take her to the doctor if she wrecks on the highway. Nadine understands, of course. She's just excited to have a destination in mind now. Nadine figures Larry must have been on a motorcycle before they found him to make it there from New York City so fast. Larry admits that he ditched it when he got too nervous about riding alone. But Nadine says he won't be alone anymore, and she is excited to head to Vermont. While Nadine and Joe nap, Larry goes to a gunquit, into a gunquit, to look for a motorcycle dealership. But he finds none, though he's sure he saw a cycle shop in Wells. When he returns to Nadine and Joe, he tries to sleep, but can't, so instead he goes back to the barn. Thousands of grasshoppers jump wildly to get out of his way, and Larry thinks, I'm their plague. I'm their dark man. He finds two empty Pepsi cans and a crust of a sandwich. Inside, Larry climbs up to the cupola where he's able to climb out onto the roof. He can see beyond the highway to the ocean, and the land was an oil painting depicting high summer, 
all green and gold, wrapped in a still haze of afternoon. He could smell salt and brine. Downstairs, Larry catches something carved into one of the support beams of the barn. The initials H.L.L.F.G. and a heart with an arrow. Larry realizes that Harold has had risked his neck putting Francis's name on the barn because he was in love. H.L. loves F.G. Good for you, Harold, Larry said, and he leaves the barn. At the cycle shop in Wells, Nadine is eager to find some bikes and be off. Larry tells her it's five o'clock and there's no way they are getting going until tomorrow. Nadine claims that there are three hours of daylight left and they might miss them if they wait. Larry deduces that if they miss them, they miss them. It's likely Harold will leave more instructions if they move on. He knows Nadine is anxious, but she's never ridden a motorcycle before. He could feel his old impatience building up, but he's forcing himself to control it. Nadine doesn't really get it. She claims she can ride a bike and she knows how to use a clutch. If they don't waste any more time, they can camp in New Hampshire and be about halfway there by tomorrow night. Larry loses his patience and tells her it's not like a bike. The anger he feels collapses into dull shame when he realizes that he's hurting Nadine by holding her by her shoulders too tightly. Nadine asks Larry how it's not like a bike. His first impulse was to shout at her. If you know so much, go on and try it. See how you like looking at the world with your head on backward. He controlled that, thinking it wasn't only the boy he had lost ground with. He'd lost some with himself. Maybe he had come out on the other side, but some of the old childish Larry had come out with him, tagging along at his heels like a shadow which has shrunk in the noonday sun, but has not entirely disappeared. Larry tries to calmly explain the differences between a motorcycle and a bike and the dangers of riding a motorcycle as opposed to a bike. And she has to get used to having Joe on the bike with her. Larry tells Nadine that she is responsible for Joe, and he is responsible for the both of them. He doesn't want to see her take a spill. Nadine seems to finally understand something, and she asks if that's what happened to Larry or someone he was with. And Larry finally tells her about Rita, about how she was dead before Larry crashed his motorcycle. Nadine asks if she had died in a motorcycle accident. Larry responds, No, what happened, I'd say, was 70% accident and 30% suicide. Whatever she needed from me, friendship, understanding, help, I don't know, she wasn't getting enough. He was upset now, his temples pounding thickly, his throat tight, the tears close. Her name was Rita, Rita Blakemore. I'd like to do better by you, that's all. You and Joe. He admits that it's hard to talk about and it hurts a lot, which is why he hadn't told her. And that's the truth, but not the whole truth, because there were the dreams, and he wondered if Nadine had bad dreams too. Did Joe have bad dreams? Nadine agrees to finally wait, and he can teach her how to ride that night. While Nadine cooks dinner, Larry works on getting the bikes gassed up. He finds a plate covering the underground tank of gas near the dealership, along with a candy bar wrapper similar to the one he had found in the barn. Larry attributes these to Harold. Joe helps Larry pry the plate up from the ground, and when Larry thanks Joe, Joe says, welcome, in a rusty, struggling voice. The sound startles Larry and Nadine, but they're both pleased with it. Joe can talk. Nadine knew he could, and it's wonderful to know that he can recover. Nadine thinks Joe just needed both of them, two halves. That night, Larry is teaching Nadine how to ride the motorcycle, though it's not easy. She's having difficulty, which is concerning for Larry for obvious reasons. And she thinks Joe ought to ride with Larry at first, just in case. But Nadine soon seems to get the hang of it, and they finally turn in for the night. Larry thinks Nadine might come to him that night, when Joe was finally asleep, or maybe he should go to her. Larry wanted her, and from the way she had looked earlier, he knew that she wanted him too. But soon, Larry falls asleep. He dreamed he was in a field of corn, lost there. But there was music, guitar music. Joe playing the guitar. If he found Joe, he would be all right. So he followed the sound, breaking through one row of corn to the next when he had to, at last coming out in a ragged clearing. There was a small house there, more of a shack, really, the porch held up with rusty old jacklifters. It wasn't Joe playing the guitar. How could it have been? Joe was holding his left hand and Nadine his right. They were with him. 
An old woman was playing the guitar, a jazzy sort of spiritual that had Joe smiling. The old woman was black and she was sitting on the porch, and Larry guessed she was about the oldest woman he had ever seen in his life. But there was something about her that made him feel good. Good in the way his mother had once made him feel good when he was very little, and she would suddenly hug him and say, Here's the best boy. Here's Alice Underwood's all-time best boy. Mother Abigail introduces herself to Nadine, Larry, and Joe. Larry wishes he could stay there forever. It was a good place. The man with no face couldn't get them there. Mother Abigail tells them to come see her as quick as they can. They have to go before he gets wind of them. Nadine asks, before who gets wind of them? And Mother Abigail responds, That black man, that servant of the devil. We got the Rockies between us and him, praise God, but they won't keep him back. That's why we got to knit together, in Colorado. God come to me in a dream and showed me where. But we got to be quick, quick as we can anyway. So you come see me. There's others coming too. Nadine says no, they're going to Vermont. It's just a short trip. But Mother Abigail says their trip will be longer than theirs if they don't fight off his power. She is looking at Nadine with great sadness. This could be a good man you got here, woman. He wants to make something out of himself. Why don't you cleave to him instead of using him? The old woman looked at Nadine pityingly. You'll go straight to hell if you don't watch close, daughter of Eve. And when you get there, you are going to find that hell is cold. The dream broke up, splitting into darkness that swallowed him. Something in the darkness was stalking him, cold and merciless, and soon Larry would see its grinning teeth. And that's when he wakes up. It's a half hour after dawn, and Joe is lying next to him, thumb in mouth, shivering deep in his sleep, as if his own nightmare had gripped him. Larry wondered if Joe's dreams were different from his own. After breakfast, they started off on the motorcycles. Nadine is excited and says it's like being on a quest. But Larry can't share her enthusiasm. Rita had said something similar when they left New York. Two days before she died, she had said it. They stopped for lunch in Epsom, eating under the tree where Larry had fallen asleep and Joe had stood over him with a knife. He's relieved that riding the motorcycles wasn't as bad as he thought it would be. They were making good time and Nadine was being extremely careful about slowing down and not asking Larry to go any faster than the steady 35 miles per hour pace he was setting. They might be in Stovington by the 19th if the weather held. But Nadine suggests that they save time by going directly northwest on I-89, bypassing Harold and Francis's route. But Larry thinks that there will be a lot of stalled traffic. Nadine feels like they can weave in and out of it and use the breakdown lane when they have to. The worst that can happen is they'll have to backtrack and exit and go around on a secondary road. So they do, and they did eventually come to a blockage where a road and a horse-trailer combo had jackknifed. They're able to hoist the bikes over the buckled hitch, and after that, they're too tired to go any further. That night, Larry didn't ponder whether or not Nadine would come to him. That night, he was too tired to do anything but sleep. The next afternoon, Larry asked Nadine what she did before the plague. Joe is talking a bit more, and Larry asked Nadine if she was a teacher. She's surprised at his guess because, yes, she was. First and second graders. It explained her unwillingness to leave Joe. In his mind, at least, the boy had regressed to a seven-year-old age level. Larry explains a long time ago he dated a speech therapist from Long Island, and a lot of her approaches to kids was like how Nadine had approached Joe when he said welcome. Nadine is pleased by this, and she believes that the little kids are the only good human beings. Larry asks if she was married before, but she says no. She's 37 and the original old maid school teacher. Larry's eyes move to the gray in her hair, and she tells him that it's premature. Her grandmother had been totally white by the time she was 40. Larry moves to touch her, but Nadine tells him not to. She doesn't want it, though Larry could feel her wanting coming off of her in mild, but clearly receivable waves. Nadine looks like she's on the verge of tears, and she's about to speak when Joe approaches them. And he says, lady, and points over his shoulder. Suddenly, there's another female voice, choking with emotion. They look over and see a woman half running up the street towards them, smiling and crying at the same time. She's so glad to see them and nearly faints, but Larry is there to steady her until the dizziness pass. 
She looked to be about 25, her face pale, her eyes blue. She's staring at them, as if trying to reassure herself that they were not hallucinations. Larry introduces them. She's so happy to meet them, and then she puts her arms around Nadine and sobs. Nadine holds her. Joe stands there with his thumb in his mouth, and the two men stood that way and watched the women solemnly. And that was how they met Lucy Swan. Lucy is eager to go with them when they tell her where they're headed. They help her outfit her with supplies, and Nadine goes to Lucy's house with her to help her pack some clothes and belongings, including a photo of the woman's late husband and daughter. Lucy tells them her tale, short and simple. Her husband had sickened on the 25th of June, her daughter the next day. She had nursed them as well as she had been able, fully expecting to come down with the rails, as they were calling the sickness in her corner of New England herself. By the 27th, when her husband had gone into a coma, and Field had pretty much been cut off from the outside world, television reception had become spotty and queer. People were dying like flies. During the previous week, they had seen extraordinary movements of army troops along the turnpike, but none of them had business in such a little place as Enfield, New Hampshire. In the early morning hours of June 28th, her husband had died. Her daughter had seemed a little bit better for a while on the 29th and then had taken an abrupt turn for the worse that evening. She had died around 11 o'clock. By July 3rd, everybody in Enfield except for her and an old man named Bill Dads had died. Bill had been sick, Lucy said, but he seemed to have thrown it off entirely. Then, on the morning of Independence Day, she had found Bill dead on Main Street, swollen up in black like everyone else. Lucy then mentions her bad dreams, and Larry is startled. Joe is even staring at Lucy now, his eyes gleaming. Lucy explains about the dreams, a man chasing her, though she can never see what he looks like because he's wrapped in a cloak. She would be too afraid to sleep then. Joe cries out suddenly, Brackman, Brackman, bad dreams chases me scares me. Larry says it's crazy, but asks Lucy if she's ever dreamed about Nebraska. She did, one night, have a dream about a black lady, but it didn't last long. The black lady told Lucy to come see her, and then she woke up. Larry looked at her so long that she dropped her eyes away and blushed. Larry looks at Joe and asks if he's dreamed about a woman with a guitar. Corn? Nadine tells Larry to leave him alone, or he'll upset him more, even though it's Nadine who sounds upset. Larry presses on, and he sees a gleam in Joe's eyes. Larry mentions the swing made out of a tire, and Joe breaks loose from Nadine and starts saying the swing as he whirls away from Nadine. Lucy remembers the swing, too. Why are they all having the same dreams? Larry asks Nadine if she dreams, too. But Nadine says she does not dream. Larry knows she's lying. When he presses her on it, she yells at him. She doesn't dream, and why can't he leave her alone? Nadine stands and leaves the fire. Lucy watches Nadine and then stands and offers to go after her herself. Ten minutes later, they return, like they had both been crying, but they seem to be on good terms. Nadine apologizes to Larry. She was upset, and it came out in funny ways. The subject of the dreams does not come up again. Larry does dream of the black man on a high place that night, and then the old woman on her porch. Only this time he knew the black man was coming, striding through the corner, his terrible hot grin spot welded to his face, coming closer and closer. Larry wakes up in terror, but the others continue to sleep nearby. The black man had not been coming empty-handed. In his arms, borne like an offering as he strode through the corn, he held the decaying body of Rita Blakemore, now stiff and swollen, the flesh ripped by woodchucks and weasels, a mute accusation to be thrown at his feet to scream his guilt at the others, to silently proclaim that he wasn't no nice guy, that something had been left out of him, that he was a loser, that he was a taker. But Larry sleeps again, and this time his sleep is dreamless. When they arrive in Stovington, the place is deserted and empty. Nadine is disappointed, but there is a sign in the center of a lawn that reads, Everyone here is dead. We are moving west to Nebraska. Stay on our route. Watch for signs. Harold Emery Lauder, Francis Goldsmith, Stuart Redman, Glendon Pequod Bateman, July 8th, 1990. Along with the names are Road Directions. 
And Larry says, Harold, my man, can't wait to shake your hand and buy you a beer or a payday. And then Nadine faints. And that is the end of chapter 44. Like chapter 43, a lot is happening here. Um, Larry is having a rough go of it at first. Rita's death um, has definitely been affecting him deeply. His paranoia about dying, about crashing without anyone around to help him, prompts Larry to get rid of his motorcycle. But even after that, he can't help but imagine the bike coming to life to come after him, sometimes with the dark man riding it and Rita's corpse riding behind him. Larry is also suffering from a heat stroke or something akin to it. He's been walking for days without a hat, without sunblock. He's not sleeping because when he does, he has nightmares and he hasn't had much of an appetite. So he's losing weight and energy. And just a quick side note that I did like the little passages at the beginning of this chapter um, about Larry's worry that the bike would somehow come back alive uh, and come after him. <laughs> it just reminded me a lot of Christine or the other uh, short stories that King has written where various vehicles have come to life to kill people. <laughs> so when Larry finally collapses, uh, he does it in front of a house in New Hampshire. He manages to crawl his way across the street to this house and falls asleep in the shade. And this is where we meet two new characters. One is a young boy named Joe, who is practically feral, and a woman we later learn is Nadine Cross. She found Joe after the plague and took him under her wing, and she seems to be the only person that he listens to or trusts because he stops in his attempt to kill Larry when she tells him not to do it. Nadine wants to follow Larry because she is pure and waiting. She's a virgin. There had been dreams and an incident with a Ouija board in college, and she was waiting for the one. And maybe this man, Larry, was the one. Joe, however, is very reluctant to this. He does not want to share Nadine, but he relents for the time being. Larry wakes up the next day, and he is feeling so much more like his old self. He even has his appetite back. And I love it when he realizes that he should have been riding a bicycle. <laughs> he nearly drove himself mad with heat stroke and he could have died because he didn't think of other transportation options beyond a motorcycle. He realizes how quickly he healed and he recovered. Um, and Larry's recovery, I mean, was it just that he needed rest? Was it that simple? Uh, his recovery, you know, is while not as grave, reminded me of Nick's bullet graze and infection. Nick probably should have died from the infection, but he didn't. He had a dream about Mother Abigail, and when he woke up, his leg was better. Uh, it doesn't say that Larry had a dream of Mother Abigail, but he fell asleep, he woke up, and he was doing much better. So, is something supernatural going on with these people? Um, is Mother Abigail healing these people from their dreams? Or is it just coincidence? So Larry knows that someone is following him, but he's not upset or fearful. He figures if they wanted to hurt him by now that they would have, of course. Little does he know it's coming. Um, and Larry, when he finally makes it to Maine and the ocean, uh, he's feeling like a new man, like he did come out on the other side. This is when Joe attacks him and he meets both Joe and Nadine. And it's not the best way to meet the people following you for the past couple of days. But this chapter also has one of my favorite quotes from King. No one can tell what goes on in between the person you were and the person you become. No one can chart that blue and lonely section of hell. There are no maps of the change. You just come out on the other side or you don't. And that's so true of Larry, Larry, who feels like he's come out on the other side, that he's changed. But we see that that's not entirely true when he meets Nadine and Joe. Joe attacks him, yes, and tries to stab him, yes. So Larry manages to kick Joe over and step on his wrist until uh, Nadine can talk uh, Joe into letting go of the knife. And Larry feels Nadine's judgment, or, you know, maybe it's just his own guilt or shame projecting, but I think Larry could have done so much worse, um, especially if he had his rifle, would he have used it? He did what he had to do, um, but he still hears that voice in his head, you ain't no nice guy. Some of the old Larry surfaces as well when he asked Nadine if she would consider leaving Joe behind. 
although the kid did try to stab him and he does seem a bit feral and psychotic, is Larry safe in Joe's presence? And Larry has a right to ask, although it's understandable why Nadine would say she can't leave Joe behind. I think Larry wants to be around people so badly now that, um, of course, he's going to relent and go let them come with him. So the three of them set off together, and they come to a gun quit, where they find Harold's message on the barn about Stovington. This invigorates Nadine, and she's excited to find more people. But Larry is the sensible one here, unwilling to just jet off towards Vermont. He has some admiration for Harold, as he finds signs of Harold around town and in wells from the candy bar wrappers, mostly paydays, that Harold has left behind. And Larry has this mental image of Harold just from this. Probably in his mid-30s, a farmer maybe, tall and suntanned, skinny, not too bright in the book sense maybe, but plenty canny, building up a mental picture of someone you had never seen was a fool's game because they were never the way you had imagined. Everybody knows the one about the 300-pound disc jockey with the whipcord-thin voice. So yeah, Larry's nowhere close (laughs) to what Harold is really like. But still, Harold's message is helpful and sets Nadine, Joe, and Larry on a course to Vermont. Joe has even managed to talk a bit more rather than hoot or grunt. And Joe, obviously, we see is something of a prodigy, maybe just a musical prodigy. We don't know. But he's able to pick up on the notes of Larry's guitar and play them back pretty much exactly how Larry had played it himself. So Joe clearly went through um, a lot of trauma, and he's very possessive of Nadine. But the guitar and music seem to lull him in, and with this, he begins to trust Larry. Was Joe like this prior to the plague and his bite? Um, Did the end of the world and death of those around him trigger some sort of mental break? Did he suffer from abuse beforehand? We don't know because Joe can't tell us, but we do know that his name is not Joe, and Nadine is the one who named him that. Maybe eventually we will find out what his real name is. And I did like to see uh, Larry start to slowly become... Maybe not a father figure to Joe, but an authority figure that Joe would listen to and trust, uh, someone who was not Nadine. It's almost like they're this makeshift family, which Nadine mentions in a roundabout way um, and kind of cements the attraction between Larry and Nadine. Um, Larry even thinks Nadine will come to him at night after Larry's, or not Larry, Joe. Joe is asleep, but she doesn't. When Larry finally tries to touch her, she protests, and she says that she does not want him, kind of um, indirectly. But before she can explain why, Lucy Swan shows up. So now there are four to their party instead of three, and Lucy is a young woman, now a widow, who lost her husband and daughter. And she is thrilled to see other people, very emotional, and she takes to Larry and Nadine very quickly. She and Nadine seem to get along well also, Um, And it's through Lucy that Larry realizes that they're sharing the same dreams, except Nadine, who claims that she doesn't dream, although we and Larry knows that she's lying. She's had dreams. Um, Maybe they haven't been the same as Larry and Lucy's, and maybe she's afraid. Maybe she's scared of her dreams or ashamed of them. And we see some interaction between Nadine and Mother Abigail in Larry's dream. Um, Abigail looking at Nadine with sadness and pity telling her that you'll go straight to hell if you don't want um if you don't watch close telling Nadine that Larry is a good man to cleave to him instead of using him uh Larry doesn't seem to put a lot of thought into what that might mean and i'm wondering if Joe and Nadine were having the same dream if they were just having the shared dream but didn't think to really talk about it um when they woke up because like Larry says it is kind of crazy Nadine is clearly attracted to Larry, and she is definitely a mother figure for Joe. Uh, But there's a dark cloud hovering over her. She wants to be around more people. She's desperate to find them. And is it because she's feeling tempted by Larry? Does she think being around more people will somehow temper that, um, that maybe she'll be safe? Or uh, maybe being around other people will take her to the person that she is clearly waiting for. Um, I think she knows at this point it's not Larry. And Larry is not dangerous, but, you know, maybe her attraction to him is, especially if he isn't the one that she's been waiting for. 
how long has she been having these dreams? Uh, she mentions the uh, a Ouija incident in college, and she's 37 now. So that was a long time ago. So how long has this been building uh, for Nadine? Mother Abigail warns her in Larry's dream. So what is on the horizon for her? Who is she waiting for? We don't really get to know a lot about Nadine, despite her being in this chapter quite a bit. We actually learn more about Lucy than we do about Nadine. Uh, We know Nadine is 37. We know she's a teacher. She used to be. um, And that she's waiting for something, that she's a virgin and she's waiting for someone. Uh, But that's really it. We didn't really get a whole lot of her past. We don't get a story from her except for, you know, about Joe. So that was very interesting that King kind of keeps uh, Nadine uh, veiled a little bit. And Larry is protective of Nadine, too, especially after what happened to Rita. He doesn't want Nadine to get hurt or die like Rita did. And he's trying very hard to control the unsavory traits of his personality with her. When he loses his temper in the cycle shop, um, it's only because she's so eager to get on a motorcycle and go without understanding the risks of it, uh, something that he experienced firsthand. And he finally tells her about Rita. And it seems like Nadine gets to understand his hesitance and his desire to be safe and take their time. Larry feels like he's changed, but um, he still has moments when he's ashamed of his thoughts or his behavior. And to me, that means he is changing because he's trying now. He's more aware of uh, what he says and how he says it, what he does, what he wants to do. Um, Before it was everybody else's fault, Um, you know, his mother, his girlfriend, his friends. It was never Larry's fault. Uh, He always had justification or an excuse for how he was feeling. Um, And now a lot of those feelings shame him. And he's he is trying. So I do think that maybe he's not changed completely, but he is on his way. He's taken responsibility for Nadine and Joe in a way that he did not want to take responsibility for Rita. And while at first he considered Joe to possibly being a burden like Rita, you can see that he's careful with him now. Um, As they get to know each other, he even lets Joe more or less take uh, his precious guitar as his own. So yes, Larry is changing and he may not be a saint or anything, But you can definitely see that it's Rita's death that was the catalyst. Um, Maybe, yes, the brush of death when he crashed his motorcycle. But I really do think that it was Rita that has Larry now trying to focus and be less selfish and reckless. Larry, Lucy, Nadine, and Joe find the Stovington CDC empty. This is not a surprise. Stu was right. Um, Harold's left a message, though, that everyone inside is dead. And we can see by the roll call that Glenn's name is on the sign as well. So he clearly decided to come with them after Stu and Fran and Harold rolled back through. Um, And this is a good chapter, um, especially for Larry's character development. And we're getting introduced to even more people who weren't around for book one, Nadine, Joe, and Lucy. And I like how King ended the passage, and that was how they met Lucy Swan, sort of in the same vein as Nick and Tom when they met Ralph. The survivors are starting to group together, and right now they're all headed for Nebraska. No doubt Lucy, Larry, Joe, and Nadine will be headed that same uh, way as well. And although Nadine did faint at the end of Chapter 44, um, I'm sure she's fine. (laughs) We'll have to see what that was about. Uh, But I think it was probably just exhaustion and the knowledge of a very long road trip ahead to find the others. Um, And unless they find more people on their way, um, she'll just be with Larry, Joe, and Lucy. And especially with Larry, the temptation is there. So how will Lucy's presence shift the dynamic between Larry, Nadine, and Joe? Before, like I said, it was this makeshift family. But now there's this extra person thrown into the mix. And it kind of parallels um, Stu joining Fran and Harold. They all want to find people. Um, yes, but now with these new additions to these already established couples, and I say couples with like air quotes because I'm not talking in a romantic sense at all. I'm just two people, couples. (laughs) How will personal feelings and relationships grow and change and possibly affect the journey? 
And while we've only seen her in the dreams of our characters, uh, next week we will finally get to meet Mother Abigail. Yes, she's real. She's just she's not just a figment of someone's uh, imagination. And she's been waiting um, 44 chapters for us to finally come and see her. (laughs) So even better, the first group of survivors finally arrive in Hemingford home. So who will it be? We will find out next week in chapter 45. And that is it for today's episode of The Circle Opens. Thank you guys if you've stuck with me through this whole episode. This one got pretty long. Um, I think that's just how these chapters are going to be from now on. Um, I'm going to have to start bringing glasses of water into my recording area. (laughs) So if you have been enjoying this podcast, uh, please leave me a rating or review um, on Apple Podcasts or any platform in which you listen to The Circle Opens. It's always very appreciated. Um, If you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or find me on social media at The Circle Opens. And that is it for this week, you guys. I hope everyone's having a fantastic beginning to March. Uh, Spring is just around the corner. Thank the Lord. And that's it. M-O-O-N. That spells see you next week. 